Path Solver with the Dr. Wei Jin, and uh, we're going to have a very interesting conversation today. We have with us Andre Ostrovsky, who's a physician and a founder and CEO of Care at Hand. And just a few words about Andre. Um, he is a social entrepreneur, and he's been at, uh, at his current uh, project for the last five to six years, but he's also a practicing pediatrician at Harvard. So that's really quite an interesting mix. Uh, formerly, he was a WHO data analyst. He served as a U.S. Senate Health Policy Fellow on health disparities, and he was the director of Community Vital Signs Online, a platform for the San Francisco Health Department. So welcome, Andre. We're delighted to have you, have you with us today. And I wanted to start off by turning it over to you and having you describe you know, what it is that Care at Hand is trying to accomplish. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to sharing some of our work. Uh, Care at Hand has been a pro uh, an all-encompassing project for now over four years. And as you pointed out, I'm a pediatrician, but the majority of our work with Care at Hand really revolves around uh, the elderly population and adults with uh, disabilities. And that uh, focus of mine it just highlights big picture where my, my career is always focused, which is helping populations that um, are in some way uh, vulnerable from a socioeconomic perspective, uh, a health disparities perspective, or in some other way they don't get kind of a, a fair shot at wellness. The interesting part about Care at Hand is it, it, it's really my first attempt in, a, in the for-profit realm. And up until that point, I had gone through a more or less traditional medical training uh, experience, and I had worked in research. I had worked in health policy, as you alluded to. I worked at the World Health Organization and ran a nonprofit for three years. And a uh, pretty consistent theme throughout all of those experiences was the slowness with which impact happened. And when impact did happen, uh, scale and sustainability tend to not not exist at the same time. And so that became very frustrating for me. And, and that's how a pediatrician uh, who's finishing residency is running a for-profit digital health startup in the geriatric space. Um, basically, it's we're doing what we're doing because there's in with digital health the ability to capture revenue and the ability to grow equity value is coupled with the ability to achieve the triple aim, which prior to the Affordable Care Act really wasn't uh, vibrant. Uh, and and so I owe a lot to where. Um, where, where policy has headed, where, where the, the landscape that the Affordable Care Act has created with, with all of its challenges, of course. But nevertheless, I live in a time where I can uh, make a living by building technology that helps people to be well. And that's kind of awesome. Uh, and it's a whole lot faster pace than, than doing research primarily or doing policy primarily. Uh, and so... That's how Care at Hand and came to be, and that's, that's why a pediatrician is, is working in, in this space. 
the technology itself. And, you know, feel free to interrupt at any time if any clarification or elaboration. But what we've built is is basically taking what's really exciting and sexy about digital health these days and applying it to a space that is generally not just not sexy, but fundamentally ignored in terms of the healthcare system. And I'm alluding to kind of the shadow healthcare system, which is the functional side of healthcare, the long-term supports and services. So things like um, home-delivered meals or care coordination services or options counseling or adult day health or or, um, uh, PCA services, all of these services that are essential to keep consumers, not not just patients, but people, humans, consumers of services out in the community and thriving. And it's a part of the healthcare system that, uh, from a physician's perspective, like we oftentimes don't hear about, and frankly, from a training perspective, has never been brought up, which is kind of tragic if you think about it. Uh, And yet, if long-term supports and services fall apart, then people will flood the EDs, the healthcare, the medical healthcare system gets overwhelmed, and then everything falls apart. So we, I perceived this opportunity where uh, the this this parallel part of the healthcare system, long-term supports and services, was becoming more and more of an interesting opportunity because the workforce involved in providing long-term supports and services is really inexpensive for the most part, at least compared to doctors and, and PAs, NPs, RNs in the in the more traditional medical healthcare system. And we thought, wouldn't yeah, it be true. interesting? Let me, let, me, let me just break in for a second because I think what you sure, said yeah. is so important. You know, when we look at coverage for healthcare, uh, you know, the insurers, right, our third-party uh, coverers, uh, are, are fine with paying for expensive providers to deliver the care, and and yet so much uh, cost could be taken out of the, out of the system, and, and patients and people and families would be so much better off if they paid for the inexpensive care as opposed to yeah. all the expensive care, at least in, at least in, some, uh, in some parts of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think it's a, a very valid and important observation. Uh, the way that reimbursement is happening is fundamentally changing, and it's really exciting to see uh, managed care. And obviously, there's so many different flavors of managed care, but the type of payers we work with predominantly are um, either Medicaid managed care or um, a special flavor of Medicare Part C, which is dual special needs plans. And better yet, when those two are combined into integrated care plans, but essentially plans that tend to carry the most risk for the highest risk patients. Uh, They also can enjoy a very nice upside. And the the value proposition of using a very inexpensive workforce to achieve comparable, if not better, results in terms of reducing admissions or readmissions, that's becoming more and more of a uh, well-recognized um, uh, and, and, and desired uh, value proposition, and conveniently, that's exactly our technology. So, so Andre, uh, can you give us some examples? Tell, give us maybe some 
some use cases, some scenarios with, you know, hypothetical patients, uh, how, how, how this works and benefits mm-hmm. the family and, and benefits the health plan. Yeah, absolutely. So at its core, and I'll answer your original question, which is what is our technology? It's, it's an analytics platform that predicts hospitalization risk. It's unique because it predicts risk using the observations of non-clinical workers. And so to, to your just recent question, the, the hypothetical scenario, I'll give you two quick scenarios. Imagine uh, what currently happens in a, a very common form of long-term support services, which is home-delivered meals. So the Meals on Meals program, the program that's been around for a very long time, it's a program that is basically holding on for dear life with either grant money or occasionally with Medicaid dollars. And yet it's a program that provides services that without those services, the elderly would starve. Uh, and so the, the reason why that that program is having such a difficult time is that what it considers success is not part of the traditional uh, measures of success, which is reductions in admissions or readmissions or performance on um, quality measures, like star quality measures. What we're helping to do is we're having that very same volunteer van driver for the Meals on Wheels program who's going to deliver a meal to the home of an elderly individual. Right now, he goes to the home, he documents on a piece of paper, like, yep, I was here, I delivered a meal, check, next. Now what happens is, he goes to the door, delivers the meal, and on his phone, uses the Carrot Hand app to say, yep, I'm here, deliver the meal. And now let's do a two-minute survey of questions in layman's terms that are specific to that individual consumer. And based on how that uh, van driver, the Meals on Wheels van driver respond, responds to those questions, the technology about one in five to one in ten of those surveys will actually trigger an alert to a supervising nurse care manager. And that alert will notify some, that nurse. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, give us some examples of, of what types of questions the uh, oh, van driver sure. Great, yeah, great question. So keep in mind, this, is, this van driver is no clinical super practice at all. Um, and yet the consumer at home may very well have real pathophysiology going on. So there might be questions like, I don't know, let's think, you know, heart failure. Heart failure is incredibly common. So um, one presentation, you know, doctor to doctor, we might say, by the way, I'm a pediatrician, but still, like, I understand what, let's say, orthopnea is, right? Pillow orthopnea. You lay down flat. If you have heart failure, there's pressure, fluid backs up from your left ventricle, goes to your lungs. You feel like you're drowning and you have to sit up. And the only way to relieve that feeling is if you perk yourself up on more pillows. So a meal on wheels band driver does not need to know the pathophysiology of pillow orthopnea, but they could very simply respond to a question of something like, uh, did Mrs. Jones uh, sleep on more pillows last night than most other nights? So it's still getting at the same pathophysiology. They have they don't need to assess. They need to know actually why they're asking the question. They just need to observe it or ask the consumer themselves. And so if a and did a consumer a cur- take these? How did they? How did they? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm really yeah. curious. So 
I'm I'm the senior. I've just gotten my meal delivered to me. I'm hungry. I want to go eat it. And this guy's yeah. stopping and asking me all these questions. And I'm thinking, yeah. well, why are you asking me about how many pillows I sleep on? How, how do these guys know how to make this a conversation that the that the senior is willing to engage in and and, and doesn't become as some seniors who live alone do doesn't become suspicious that there's you know something else going on here. Yeah, no, this is a great point. And and there's there's two things that happen. One is there's a, a training that's provided to these folks. And now granted, it's only one and a half thing. It's really straightforward. I mean, half of the training is dedicated to how do you turn on and turn off and charge the, the, the you know your phone, or if you happen to be getting a tablet. Um, the other half is here's the script, here's what you say, uh, frame it as hey, we just wanted to um, make sure we're covering all of our bases. Please let us know if we can be helpful. Would you mind if I asked you a couple of quick questions or, or something like that? The thing though that, that's notable is these van drivers are not just there to deliver a meal. They're delivering an experience, oftentimes delivering the single contact point with another human being of the day. So this oftentimes is not a scenario where you have a, a elderly individual saying, you know, you're, you're boring me. I have to go back to get back to my busy life. Uh, although it may, but rather you have actually an opportunity not just to deliver nutrition. You have an opportunity to help uh, intervene on isolation. And I, I'm, I, this has nothing to do with technology. This is just purely like some of the magic of home delivered meals programs. And so it's part of that dialogue. It's part of the, hey, Ms. Jones, how are you doing? You know, I saw you last week. Everything good? Grandkids okay? Awesome. Hey, listen, I have a couple quick questions. You're cool? Yeah, all right, great, boom. And then they do the questions. And now there is an upper limit of no, you know, number of questions. This has been validated widely within our technology. We can't ask that many questions. You're right. Like there is a limited attention span and we can't make this a, you know, let's sit down and let me do the MDS with you. And so what's the sell? Was this hard to, I mean, your, the success of your program depends on getting buy-in from lots of different organizations and Mm -hmm. and let's just stick with the meals on wheels. Was, was this a hard sell to them? Did they push back and say, why are, you know, first of all, it's going to take extra time from my employee, and second, mm-hmm. um, you know, are you asking us to practice medicine? Uh, I mean, it's oh, kind yeah. of above and beyond the call of duty. How easy was it for you to get these partners on board? Yeah, I love it. I mean, your essential question. And the nice thing is that the once the it, short education about what the technology does, once that happens, um, it sells itself, and here's why. Meals on Wheels, like most other long-term supports and services, are losing money. Uh, they're losing revenue streams. Not just losing money. They've never been particularly revenue generating, but they're losing revenue streams. They are desperately clamoring to figure out new ways to diversify their revenue streams. So when, when an organization like ours comes along and says, hey, look, we have experience with your colleagues. In fact, not just experience deploying, but the Robert Johnson Foundation just wrote up yet another example of how one of Carrot Hand's clients just secured a contract with United Healthcare for their, let's say, care transitions program. Um, the Meals on Wheels program or other long-term supports and services provider, they become very intrigued because they really haven't had uh, great success with closing those types of contracts. And so we come in and actually give them the opportunity to actually have me impact on the measures that matter 
to, let's say, managed care companies or to hospitals. Plus, we need to, in a very granular manner, actually quantify the impact beyond just, let's say, admissions or, or, or um, uh, like sniffling to stay, things like that. So the in, initial decision makers are very excited to get on board. Then when your other question is, let's say, workflow and efficiency. They have a certain number of meals that have to get delivered, and so are we going to slow the process down? This is exaggerating, two, or rather the two-minute mark wasn't exaggerating. This takes about two minutes with the observation, which, and actually... Oh, we lost you, Andre. Uh, Pat, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we lost you there for a while. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me okay right now? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh, great. Sorry about that. Uh, well, I was just, uh, I think I left off um, basically saying from an efficiency perspective, the fact that the van driver can capture information to risk stratify the patient and geographically located, we can already track the fact that, yes, they delivered the meal. Um, that already takes care of all the paperwork they would have been doing, so we're actually introducing efficiency, even though that's not our primary objective. Um, oh, and then, right. you know, we, yeah. So I just, want, I just want to say, you know, I think this is brilliant because years ago I used to do a lot of work in the area of domestic violence, and, you know, the domestic violence um, organizations, the community-based organizations, were always scrambling for funding and because I came from the managed care world, I used to tell them just what, what you're saying to these organizations, that this is a way that you can begin to prove your value to the people who have the deep pockets, which in healthcare at the current time is really the, you know, the insurers. And, it, and, and by turning around and saying, you know, look, here are the things that I can do to help you, Mr. Health Planner, Ms. Health Plan, solve your problem with my services really fundamentally changes kind of the, the value proposition of, of those organizations to, to the people who currently are the ones that could provide them with a new revenue stream. So I think this is really, really um, brilliant. So I, um, we're kind of running out of time, and I had a couple other things that I wanted to cover, and one of them is, so this sounds great. I mean, intuitively, I, I just love what you're doing. How do you know it works. Have you done any kind of formal evaluation to see whether it's uh, producing the kinds of outcomes that you hope for? Great question. Yes, we have. Uh, we have HRQ data that uh, reviewed 561 Medicare fee-for-service uh, patients. We looked at pre and post uh, cohort study and looked at about 18 prior to the intervention being my technology, and six months subsequent to the intervention, um, the inclusion criteria included uh, two or more admissions in the preceding year. And so for that population, we found a 39.6% reduction in 30-day readmissions. Uh, and the wow. return of that was pretty... Yeah, it, it was. And what the best part about it is that the technology, although it played an integral part, it's not the most important. The most important part is that the substrate was a very powerful transitions program. That unlike the preceding standards, which were nurse-based, doctor-based transitions programs, 
this transition program happened to use community workers that um, maybe had a college education, um, maybe some had a social work experience. Several of them had been, there was one truck driver, there were a handful of previous personal care attendants. So this is a workforce that is much less expensive. Um, and so sustainability and scalability, which I alluded to in the beginning, are very much there. Um, plus the outcomes are there now because our technology well, enables yeah. that connection between, you know, the nurse and, and the worker. Yeah, that's all great. So um, I think let's close with this because uh, it's always the most important uh, question for customers is, I mean, for uh, startups is, do you have customers? And if you can, mm -hmm. you know, kind of describe for us who they are. And then the even more important question than the customers is, are you making money? Yeah, yeah, make it, that's that's important. Uh, short answer is yes, absolutely. It's actually we're growing in terms of how much money we're making. And the part is, we're making money because we're delivering on outcomes. And that's my favorite part. And that's why I enjoy not sleeping because every moment that I'm sleeping, it's a lost opportunity to do just that. Um, in terms of customers, I'd love to highlight, and each one is unique and different, but they all have a common theme. So Elder Services of Merrimack Valley, many folks already know about because we have published so much data about them. Um, but some folks that people may not be hearing about are organizations like the Coordinating Center down in Maryland, incredibly innovative community-based organization doing much more than just care transitions at the cutting edge of how they utilize a non-clinical workforce, um, aging and long-term care of Eastern Washington, which is out in Spokane. Also, incredibly talented group of people really committed to function, support, and consumer-centric perspective. And yet they have the realization they need to deliver on outcomes. And actually, the entire state of Ohio, which we haven't inked any formal deals yet, but I suspect um, that there's going to be some serious forward progress there. The, the the theme, actually a process as a, as a best practice that other states should seriously consider is if they look at what Direction Home has done, this is basically an incorporation of all 12 AAAs in the state. They're now contracting as a group with managed care to have a critical mass of impact. I think that's one of the most brilliant innovations that has happened in health system redesign nobody's talking about it. Um, and similar work is being done in Massachusetts with uh, Mass um, Massachusetts uh, um, uh, home, home Care Association. Uh, so there, there's a lot of really innovative system redesign efforts going on. Again, technology is like a tiny part of it. I think what needs to be increasingly recognized is payers and hospitals really need to consider, can they really build their own vendor network connectivity trust in the community with such an inexpensive workforce like the long-term supports and services community can build? The short answer is absolutely not. And so I think the more opportunities exist for, for piloting and testing the waters in a very you know, quality improvement, rigorous method, I think there's some really interesting magic that can happen. I think my technology probably will be at that intersection, but again, it's not about the technology. Well, I know as uh, as Dr. Uh, Einer Sawyer at UCSF says, it's people, uh, processes, and technology, and technology yep. is purposely listed last. So I want to yeah. thank yeah. you very much, Andre. This was really a fascinating discussion. I think that what you're up to is 
really wonderful because it's benefiting not just the seniors, not just the health plans, but, you know, there's also benefit to these uh, service providers and to the people who work for those service providers. So it's really a win-win-win. So I want to thank you for joining us, and I wish you uh, all the luck in the future. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Honored to be on here and uh, look forward to connecting soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks.